Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talked to Glenn Edney. Glenn is an ocean ecologist, underwater naturalist, sailor and professional diver. He's been exploring the ocean and interacting with ocean life for more than 30 years. He has an MSc in holistic science from Schumacher College and Plymouth University in the UK. His research is focused on understanding the ocean as a living system and the role she plays as the primary life support system for our planet. He has a strong interest in bringing together traditional indigenous ocean knowledge and modern scientific ecological understanding. For the past four years, he's been collaborating with OceansWatch.org and working with communities in Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands to develop community-based qualitative assessment methodologies to monitor the health of local reefs. He's written three books, including The Ocean is Alive. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the podcast as a whole, so why not write us a review or give us some stars on your listening platform? You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word sentientism on any social media platform. You'll be made welcome in all of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good evening, Glenn. How are you? Kia Jamie. I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, evening over here, morning at your place. Yeah, we're spanning the globe and the time zone. So yeah, thank <laughs> you so much for making the time to join this sentientist conversation. So as we've explained only via email, it's great to have the chance to see you face to face, at least over the internet. But this is a series of conversations really structured around the two deepest philosophical questions. So what's real? What should we believe? And what matters morally? And the philosophy I'm working on trying to popularize is called sentientism. And it answers those two questions by suggesting we should take a naturalistic approach to forming our beliefs, using evidence and reason, probabilistically and provisionally working out, always with doubt and scepticism and humility, what to believe. And then when it comes to what matters, the clue is in the name that we should have compassion for all sentient beings, any beings that are capable of experiencing suffering and flourishing. But in these conversations, I'm talking to people who agree with that philosophy and disagree with it. We'll see where the conversation goes, but it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, but before we get to those questions, for people who don't know of you or your work already, how would you best introduce yourself and your focus? Oh, goodness me. It's, it's always important to have a label for yourself because yeah. you, you need to be able to succinctly describe what it is that you do. So my label for my work... And you don't is, need to be uh, succinct. We have plenty of time. What you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> so I call myself an ocean ecologist and I make a distinction um, between ocean ecology and marine ecology. Um, and that distinction for me is that what I'm interested in is understanding and relating to the ocean as one living system, if you like. Some might say one living being. That's what I tend to say. But really, the idea being that rather than thinking about isolated ecosystems or individual organisms within an ecosystem and studying those relationships, hmm. I come from the point of view that uh, there isn't that level of separation in real terms. Those are arbitrary demarcations that, that we apply to living systems yeah. 
for a variety of reasons. And some of the reasons are really valid. We, we do need to actually arbitrarily separate things out in some ways to make sense of them at times. Also, particularly when we are utilising aspects of ecosystems, we do need to, we, we do need to have those arbitrary demarcations. But in terms of relating and and how we find ourselves in the world for me ocean ecology sits better than marine ecology yeah. and yeah. it goes back an awful it does go back an awful long way right back to when i was very little and experiencing the ocean for the first time when i was about three years old and here in aotearoa new zealand the ocean's never far away oh yeah <laughs> so <laughs> it's all it's really hard not to be in relationship with the ocean when you live here yeah Yeah, absolutely (laughs) that's a great intro thank you and i will come back to this as well but i like the way you phrase the our imposition of categories and structures on things in a way those can be useful to us but reality itself doesn't really care about our categories and structures and labels too much and sometimes we forget whether we're just sometimes we forget whether we're discussing our categories and our terminology or whether we're actually discussing reality itself so hopefully they're correlated but not always yeah well that's the thing and i i do believe that we're in a we're in a point in our history in our evolution if you like as a species culturally socially maybe physically i'm not sure about that but we're really starting to re-examine some of the assumptions that we've been making and yeah. you know particularly the assumptions that have come out of the modern industrial life sort of stemming back quite a few hundred years and, and in some cases longer than that but you know, I think that we're in that space now and so you know having these kind of conversations becomes really relevant and important. So if we run the clock back as you said to your your earlier days the first question we'd like to structure this conversation around is uh, what's real so for many people that's a story about whether they grew up in a uh, religious context supernatural context or a more naturalistic atheistic context um, how they formed their beliefs about what's real and how to judge what's real and what reality really is and how that system of thought has shifted if it has over their lives so it would be interesting to know mm. that epistemological side of your right. story if you right. like yeah, but religion never played a part in my life. Mm. My parents were, hmm, they were some Christian denomination. Yeah. I'm not even sure if they could remember what it was. And my only experience of uh, a religious life was running away from Sunday school at the age of about five because I couldn't get a straight answer from the teacher. Really, And I, I was probably asking, and I don't remember what I was asking, but it had something to do with Jesus and some of the miracles or whatever that, that I was being taught about. And so some things didn't clearly, and I'm sorry, I'm hazy on the details. But yeah. Well, you were five, so. <laughs> yeah, something didn't fit, and I just found myself annoyed that, I couldn't get a straight answer to this. So that was 
my memory of how I felt. Yeah. And, and I just wasn't interested in hanging around. So <laughs> I just <laughs> left. And luckily, I had cousins who didn't live that far away. So I ended up there and then they rang my mum and dad and they came and picked me up. And quite literally life. ran away from Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. You know, so religious life or, um, and back then, that for me, that was the same as a spiritual life, and none of that really existed for me. So I grew up in the country, mm. uh, surrounded by farmland, very, very kind of um, conservative farm, farming area where I grew up, and that was what life was. I had my dog, we had sheep, we had chooks. We didn't have a farm ourselves. Yeah. My dad worked for a milking machine company, and he was a fitter and turner, put in milking machines and farms. But that was my experience. And the what back then I termed the natural world, what that was the world to me. Yeah. Of course, much later I realised that that actually wasn't a, a, a natural world in, in, in terms of it had been modified, hugely modified for human convenience and livelihood and so on but at the time it was paradise because yeah. I had a paddock next to the house and the paddock had some rugby goal posts and my dog pretty much taught me how rubbish I was at playing rugby by <laughs> always scoring the tries and so on so that was that was how I that was how I grew up and then and then ocean came into it as well so yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even think about it, and then ah, oh, we moved to Auckland, which is the largest city in the country. Back then, it was only about a half a million people, and that was completely different because now I was in suburbia, and it was the human-built world. So I'd grown up for the first eight years where the human world was actually slightly peripheral. And I was I was just outside all the time, particularly my dog was my best mate and so on. And then we moved to the city and my parents wouldn't let me bring the dog, which was fairly traumatic. And we arrived and there was just houses everywhere. And we did have a farm at the back of our house back then that soon got turned into playing fields, which, hey, yeah, that's a nice environment, but it's... It was an environment just for humans. Yeah, and, yeah. And so for me, I started to have this sort of sense that for the first time probably that we were separate. You know, yeah. There's humans and then there's the rest of life. But my first sort of seven or eight years, I didn't really experience that. You know, for me, there was any, wasn't any separation. And I'm more integrated, yeah. A lot more integrated. And, and it didn't even occur to me that, uh, that there was anything other than that. That it was just that everybody was together. And when I say everybody, yeah. all, all the species that I encountered were everybody. And so I think that's not an uncommon experience for kids yeah. who grow up in the country. We're, we're much closer to that kind of those animistic values of non-separation when we're kids. Yeah. We get that kind of, we get that civilized out of us. I think you're right. It's civilized out of us or trained into us. It's um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a pretty strong yeah. pressure too. Um, yeah. and even people who 
don't have a, a you know religious background or a religious way of thinking because I assume you never you never adopted a religious way of thinking either. We and do an anthropological study at university of of fundamentalist Christian churches. Oh yeah. Yeah, because uh, I thought I needed to do something completely out of my comfort zone. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I went to a um, an evangelistic, fundamentalist kind of church, big stage, swimming pool on the stage, people getting baptised on the stage and everything. Security guards, at the, the doors are locked from, so people can't get out. It wasn't to stop people getting in. Security guards were on the inside, and I just found it all really bizarre. And, and it didn't enamor me very much with that. Can I jump ahead a little bit? Because it's yeah, just of course. A, me a story, an experience that I had. We were traveling in, in Turkey in the mid-90s. And we arrived at this, in this town. There's a set of ruins called Ephes close by. And then there's this other set of ruins, but they were closed. It was five o'clock in the afternoon and they were closed and we were just looking inside. And then this Turkish man came up. He was the caretaker and we didn't speak Turkish. He didn't speak English, but he motioned for us to come inside. And so we went inside and he showed us around and there are old buildings and, and tombs and things like that. And then he took us over to this one tomb and he pointed to it. And through however, I can't remember now, but we got the understanding that what he was telling us was that this was the tomb of St. John the Baptist. And it was true. That's where he's buried. Wow. You know, this is the real person. Yeah, yeah. Wow, amazing. And then he took us up to to this um, stone seat up on the top of a hill overlooking a valley. Now, back then the valley was underwater and the shoreline came right up to the bottom of this hill that we were sitting on and these stone steps. Now, the stone seat, sorry, and the seat has these indentations where a lot of backsides have sat in those <laughs> yeah. seats over several th- several thousand years. I got the impression that the seat had been there prior to... So apparently John the Baptist and Mary ended up there after uh, the kerfuffle of, you know, crucifixion and so on and so forth. Mm. Now, I don't have a, I don't actually have an opinion about whether that, that's all the crucifixion and everything, Jesus rising up. I just don't have an opinion about it yeah. because it, it doesn't concern me. Yeah. But what the experience of being there in that place and that sense of history and just the, the feeling and we're talking about sentience. We are talking about what we've yeah. we feel with our bodies and so on. It was in it was remarkable. It was absolutely remarkable, and it gave me a little window of understanding. I think where about how people experience that 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 continuity of belief. Yeah. Yeah, You know, it didn't make me a believer, but nevertheless, I had a real experience of that, that sense of continuity of time, of lived experience. Yeah, of, of connectedness. Generations of people and connectedness and so on. So it was really remarkable. And that opened my eyes a little bit to go, okay, there's real people that were living at that time who were having real experiences. And 
the the legacy of all of that, part of that legacy anyway, is religious belief, you know, that particular religious belief. And so you can multiply that around all the various religions around the world. And to me, it seems like they'll all be grounded not only in a set of beliefs of something separate and above, i.e. God, but they're also grounded in actual experience that actual people were also having. And so there's some commonality there. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that really had a big impact on me and it, and it gave me, I think it it gave me a little bit more humility and a little bit less arrogance towards respecting other people's experience Um, and beliefs, respecting their beliefs. I don't have to believe them. I don't have to agree necessarily, but that that was a lesson that day. And yeah, and it sort of stayed with me. Yeah, it's a powerful experience. And I think that's one of the interesting themes that comes up in this series of conversations so far, because personally, my worldview is it can seem quite hard edged. You know, it's very naturalistic. It's very materialistic. Ultimately, I do think we are just you know, patterns of information processing and there's matter and energy and obviously dark energy and maybe other stuff we don't understand, but it's pretty solidly grounded in, um, in a sort of naturalistic understanding of reality. But at the same time, that doesn't stop me having a deep appreciation for the kineticness of all things. I feel a sense of awe and wonder and rich communal connectedness. I think it has a lot in common with the emotional experiences that religious people or spiritual people have as well. So I feel like I can get to the same place and I have many of those same senses while still maintaining a 100% naturalistic view, partly because I think that naturalistic view should have humility at its heart and should have doubt at its heart and should always be sceptical. That's the power of a naturalistic worldview is you're always open to new evidence. But as you said, sometimes it can come across as being quite arrogant or quite defined or we have all the answers or science already has the perfect story. There's nothing more to this. And I think that can be limiting. And it gives you know, an unfortunate impression as well because um, part of the reason I describe sentientism as committed to evidence, reason and compassion rather than just science is because I think our experience is a type of evidence as well. We can be sceptical of it and we could want to corroborate it and want to understand how strange experiences can happen in our minds that might not be correlated with reality, but it is a type of evidence too. And so I'm interested because clearly you feel those things deeply as well, that sort of sense of resonance and connectedness and and so on. And we'll come on to this as you think about your work in the ocean as well. For you, is that perspective naturalistic, but systemic and holistic and connected? Or have you come to think that there's something else that's separate from physical reality and matter and energy and information pressing is there some other thing that's going on are you open-minded about that i'm open-minded because i know that i have a limited experience even though i've been on the planet and been around the sun 57 times yeah um, quite limited experience and and i've also had experiences in my life that cause me to question the the limited perspective that you know, reductionist science mm. provides. And and I'm a scientist and I love yeah. science. And it's the most wonderful tool and, it, and it's a great way of, of providing detail about things. But, it, but it's clearly not the ideal tool for 
really good decision making. So it's one of the tools that we can bring in, mm. but it shouldn't, from my view, it should never be seen as the sole arbiter of truth. Mm. And, and that's one aspect of that. The other aspect is that I don't see personally a separation between the physical experience and the what I'll call the spiritual experience. Mm. Uh, and I think that they aren't separate things for me personally. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have my, my beautiful wife sees that differently and, and we have lots of fantastic conversations and we usually end up getting to a point of understanding each other more rather yeah. than seeing each other as right or wrong or anything like that. So I experience myself in the physical world, uh, which is a world that is completely connected and interconnected. So without separation between uh, you know, mind and matter, for one thing, and without separation between life and non-life, ridiculous idea to try and separate them. Try and think of a, um, a sunbathing lizard without the rock to, to sunbathe on, you know, or schooling fish without the water to yeah. hold them. It's a ridiculous idea to separate those things. And there is something that that can't be defined by our physical uh, by our physical explanations of the living world. Mm. So we can say oh, it's energetic and absolutely, totally it is, sure. But there is, so I'll, I'll go to Gregory Bateson really to because I think he just sums it up so well way back in the 1970s. You know, it's mind in nature. Yeah, and then of course we have the idea of the collective mind. Now we don't need to invoke anything supernatural or or otherwise to understand that there is a collective response and there is collective memory. There is there's there is a collective relation or relating going on all the time. I mean, one of the things, so my particular area of, of, of research interest, uh, one of two main areas of interest, is looking at the ocean as, as a whole living system and how that came into being. So the evolution of life, mm. uh, but not just the evolution of biological life in this liquid environment, but the evolution of a living ocean. Yeah, so the whole system. Yeah, the whole system. So where we don't separate the water and say it's just it's the substrate or whatever. Because water is central in the life story and it's central in the universal story as well. So it makes sense if you want to try and understand from an ecological perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, that you suspend this idea of separation and you look at how has this happened and, and yeah, it's and a different book, lens a different way of seeing the whole yeah yeah and so in my book the oceans alive that's really a main big focus and i've got two chapters on sentience and how sentience evolved in the ocean 
And re what my research really showed me and what I got to is in terms of understanding was that the idea of, you know, uh, what right now we have our particular perspective on what sentience is mm. and we have perspectives on levels of sentience and that's a whole discussion around why we what needs are, are met for us by making all of these different levels of sentience more or less important but the reality is that several things life okay started in the ocean Life started off communal. It's always been communal. It's, mm. There's never been, you know, individual life forms that don't relate completely with other life forms. So life has always been communal. Now, if life is communal, it requires communication. What are you going to communicate about? You are communicating about the sensed world. Right from the beginning, the first archaea and bacteria had interoception and exteroception. So yeah. they could sense the outside world and the inside world. They had to make sense of that. There was always... And, and it may seem silly, but in my way of thinking, that's almost like the root of a naturalistic approach, right? Even these very simple things are sensing the environment and in some way building, you know, knowledge is too strong a word, but they're in some way, whether it's in their own structure or ultimately their own DNA, and then eventually learning, they are storing knowledge about that world and a representation of the world. But Absolutely. And so there's a couple of other things that are important too. So life is always contextual mm. and your, your circumstances are always changing. So you're sensing the world. And back then, the, the first sensing was like chemical sensing. Um, so you're getting chemical signals. Mm. Um, you're also getting signals you know, internally. Now, you are in a communal world. So you have to relate with others in this communal world. And we're talking about bacteria. Yeah. Um, so the communication between bacteria is, again, chemical. And you're passing information but the context keeps changing. The, the situation keeps changing. The physical conditions keeps changing. And so you are constantly adapting to new situations. And so it becomes quite complex, doesn't it? First of all, mm. you're adapting to these new situations from the chemical signals internally and externally. You're communicating those different situations and you're having to respond and adapt to what others are doing around you as well. So there's actually quite a complex array of choice making that's going on. Now, we have to use these words choice and decision making because, you know, that is actually what's going on, but we don't need to pretend that it's the at the same level of choice making, decision making that yeah. we go about now but it was contextually appropriate and it remains contextually appropriate today and in fact right now the you and i are sitting here talking to each other the absolutely trillions of bacterial cells in our bodies are still yeah. doing exactly the same thing as yeah, they were doing just at different levels so you know so for me what i started to understand was that sentience was also fundamental to life and so the evolution of 
sentience and the increasing complexity of life requiring more sophistication in, in that sentience that started right at the very beginning. And our human conceit over the last few hundred years, particularly the last 400 years, mm. has been that there was nothing and then there was us. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's just simply not the case. And so this is where I now am at, is like in my own personal life as well as my work, is really questioning some of the approaches that we have to our decision making around how we are relating to other organisms because yeah. and i guess this gets a little bit to i think what you're exploring is you know how do we make these moral and ethical decisions yeah uh, and what i see and what has come to me in my research work i guess is that you know we are <laughs> we've started 400 years ago we started this really intense form of separating ourselves out mm. putting ourselves up on a pedestal we were the only sentient being we were the only being that could reason and all yeah you know, all works and now we're working our way back to a point where we we see that it's a continuum and where are we on that journey uh, at the moment? Yeah, and it's Ocean. interesting because that sort of anthropocentrism or that, or even put it more contentiously, human supremacy, that sort of arrogance and exceptionalism can come from a religious source, right? So it can come from dominion or we were made in the image of the God, animals are here for us to use, so on. But it can also come from a naturalistic stance as well, a scientific worldview that we're clearly the brightest, the cleverest, the most intelligent, the most powerful, the most capable. We're on some imagined apex of evolution, even though by definition, every other being that is existing today is also on an apex of evolution. So I think you're right. There's a sort of both a naturalistic and a uh, and a religious rationale for that human supremacy yeah. that I do think yeah. you're right. We're, we're trying to chip away at now. And we are. And the tools that we've got, sometimes they're a bit clunky. The science is, is a little bit clunky in, 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 in this regard. However, what, what the science of, of um, ethology, uh, you know, neuroethology, you know, looking at basically looking at sentience and experience and, and so on in, in other animals, although it's quite clunky, it is evidence-based. Yeah. And so what, what I find really interesting now, so when I first started doing this kind of research, this was a number of years ago at that stage, mm, some of the higher apes, a few birds, yeah, dolphins for sure, you know, mm. orca, they had some level of self-awareness. Yeah, And how quickly now this is starting to change. So when I first started researching for my book about all of this stuff, the idea that fish were self-aware was still, you know, really contentious. And yeah. there were people talking about it, but not many. It was very contentious. But by the time I got to the sort of final stages in 2016, by that stage now, you know, it's been truly shown empirically that fish indeed feel pain and, yeah. and this is another thing as well we focus on the ability of another organism to feel pain 
And what does that say about us? Is we're going to care if the pain that we're inflicting can be felt and experienced by that, by that organism, and then we care. And I, for me, I just found that really troubling. What is it? it says more about us and our focus than it says. What about the ability to feel thrilled, mm. the ability to feel joy and all of those things? So I started asking those things. But anyhow, it's actually scientifically easier to test for pain (laughs) and the conscious experience of that pain. So what, where we've got to now really should cut that short a little bit, but we've got to now is that we know that in fact, every single fish that's been tested with the modified, more appropriate mirror tests shows self-awareness. Yeah. Every single one. And of course there's only a few species that have actually been tested because you know, it's, it's hard to do all that experimenting and you've got to repeat and repeat and so on. But every single one shows self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing. The, the more we study, the broader that, you know, one, our, our, our understanding of the richness and complexity of behaviour and mental capacity is in, in different animal species, but critically that capacity for sentience, for suffering and flourishing, the more we look, the more we find. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And oh, sorry, um, somebody sent me an email. That's all right. <laughs> and it'd be interesting to know what how your personal ethical journey mapped to that as well, because most people grow up in an environment where we're taught to care about our families, of course, and the people around us, the town and the village, and then over time have a default, at least conceptual compassion for all humans, uh, and um clearly have a feeling for companion animals you mentioned already having your dog dog as your best mate as well so there's already at an early stage an extension beyond the human species but it tends to be quite selective as well how has your personal journey mapped to that appreciation of wider and wider sentience has that been something that has happened quickly or is still ongoing or how do you map that your appreciation of the breadth of sentience to what does that mean morally and actually does your you know, when if someone says to you what matters morally, do you use sentience as a way of defining a rough boundary around that, or, or do you think there's something else that we need to consider in morality? Yeah, very good and deep questions. So, sorry, too many at once. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. But I'll um, I'll tell you the story of, of when I first experienced fish expressing their pain. Yeah, and it was going fishing with my mum and dad. I would have been about nine something like that and the fish were running that day and then and every time you put a line over the side you you had another snapper we call snapper it's a sea bream and and i was just appalled at what i was experiencing because the fish were coming into the boat they were being taken off the hook and they're being thrown down into the bottom of the boat and there they were silently screaming is as one of my um dear mentors used to say but basically I mean, they're effectively drowning yeah yeah exactly and and i said to my dad i said dad they look like they're in pain they look we can't leave them like this and he said to me don't worry son fish don't have brains they can't feel anything and not only did i not believe him but it was the first time when i thought okay, you, yeah, it's true. You don't know everything. 
Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, I felt really disappointed. But overwhelmingly, I thought, you're so wrong. These fish in pain. And that, I, didn't, I didn't want to go fishing after that. Uh, I think that when you have those experiences, I think for many people, when you have those experiences, it has a really deep impact on you. And maybe, I, I wouldn't say for me anyway, that it's the, the start of a moral consideration necessarily, although it might, it's a trigger, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah that moral consideration and I guess because of the type of research interest that I have and where I've got to in my understanding of of the agency of life I guess I've got to the point where I my moral consideration is based on the wholeness of life and interconnectedness you know what you do here will have an impact here. And so for me, the moral imperative is to act uh, with kindness, with thoughtfulness and with respect for, you know, the, what's the right word? It's really hard to say, this the sanctity or you know yeah. but the but but that life all life is important and it's all got its part to play yeah um now the other aspect to that is the acknowledgement for me anyway that life also eats life yeah um and and that we should not remove ourselves from that we do and that's where for me i think that there are some really important considerations that that each individual needs to consider and they are going to be personal so a long time ago i had made decisions that i was not going to kill animals and that i was not going to eat them and so on but for me it goes further than that in our everyday activities what consideration are we giving to all of those life forms being able to fulfill their ecological roles, to have their experience in the world. And keeping in mind that still life needs to consume itself, you know, it needs to recycle nutrients and, and that's, that is the reality. So we're involved in that as well, whether, you know, a, a radical vegan or a rampant meat eater, your obligation to fit into that cycle does not diminish. So the choices that you make for me need to be based around how you are fitting in mm. and what are you contributing to that overall life cycle. Now, my, my personal thing is I find it really difficult to, uh, to see some of the human activities at the moment is the way that some people um, don't give any thought to what they're consuming, what they're eating, and the other things that they're consuming as well. They don't give any thought to it. Yeah. And that's that human privilege you know, that's all here for us. You know, that, that for me is where the, you know, the moral and ethical 
kind of frame sits. Yeah. Not so much in that we can have this, but not this, because this is more sentient than that. Uh, so for me, it's a, it's more about actually how we respect the relationships that we're a part of. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I think there's a lot of overlap between your way of thinking and mine in that because my perspective also has a rich appreciation for connectedness, ecosystems, relationships, um, dependencies, and so I guess my sort of broadly speaking, my environmental concern is driven by a concern for the experiences of the sentient beings that are richly embedded in that environment and depend on it. But the reason ultimately I care about the system and the ecosystem and networks of living things and the environment is because of their impact on sentient beings, not because of the environment in its own. So I think there is a slight difference there, but it takes you to a similar place. But one hesitation I do have about some sort of more holistic schools of thought is that for some people they tend to be again shaped by anthropomorphic concern so i said this on other interviews and it annoys some environmentalists but it feels to me like the center of gravity of the environmental movement has started with a concern for all of humanity which is great it's then reflected the threat to humanity of climate change and environmental destruction so then takes what could be a positive step and radically extends moral moral consideration to say, look, we need to care about this entire environment. But in extending that compassion, it conveniently carves out, for example, all farmed animals and the non-charismatic wild animals and says, oh no, we can still continue catastrophically destroying them and eating them because we like the taste of them, while pretending to have this broad environmental concern. And to my mind, that type of environmentalism is really just another reflection of the human supremacy we talked about. It's saying we like the environment because we enjoy watching it because we like our nature programs. It isn't actually a genuine emotional moral connection. Um, So to my mind, I'm quite comfortable. If people want to go beyond sentient beings and we can define that boundary in a fuzzy way and say, look, I also have a concern for things that can't flourish and suffer as individuals as well. I'm quite comfortable with that as long as we don't carve out and exclude any of those sentient beings from our moral consideration. And that tends to happen a lot at the moment. So in a, in a way, it's, it echoes one of my challenges to religious way of thinking. One is epistemological, right? Where's the facts to support that? But the other one is ethical in that both in some holistic systems and in some religious systems, needlessly causing suffering and death is seen as okay, as long as it's part of some wider system. Whereas I say, needlessly causing suffering and death is just a moral wrong full stop so that's my hesitation sometimes about yeah no i i hear what you're saying and uh, you know i have a lot of sympathy with that point of view because we do cherry pick a lot oh yes Uh, (laughs) we're very good at it yeah for our own convenience you know and and you know for me the yeah the root of that cherry picking is in the concept or the belief of we as separate yeah. from everything else. Like I said before, for me, um, the, the moral question uh, is very much based around all of our actions uh, and how we are fitting in yeah. rather than cherry-picking a few that we'll be moral and ethical about. And 
I'm where I live and my, you know, I live close to the Pacific Ocean. It's beautiful and close to a little town. It's got a marina. And in that marina is a um, very archaic activity, which is deep sea game fishing. You know? yeah. So trophy hunting, fishing. And, and it's still incredibly popular. Now, I find it heartrending every time I'm down there and this yeah. beautiful marlin is, is hauled up onto the scales and then these big bare-bellied guys are coming back and they get their photo taken and it's all rah, rah, rah and, and everybody brings their kids down. It's just, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Mm. And, and so for years I've been struggling about how do I respond to this? And quite a while back we responded by, you know, having protests and, and things like that didn't get us anywhere and one of the things that i've learned over the years is that if you want to carry on having conversations with people and putting your point of view across you're going to have to do it in a way or you know you have to treat the these other fellow humans with a degree of respect yeah um, and compassion for them too and compassion for them as hard as it can be sometimes when I see those beautiful sentient beings hanging yeah. up there for no other reason except somebody wanted to show how big their nether regions were. I yeah. And it's just, it's really hard to, to get my head around how to approach this changing. How can we actually change this? Yeah. And that's, and in a way that's the conversation it would be great to, to close on is to think about the future because it's not enough to be right, right? <laughs> We know that already just having the moral argument isn't, isn't sufficient. And if you talk to those people down in the marina, no doubt they will tell you that this is part of the natural process where the apex predator life eats life on the cycle goes. But yeah. what really counts to me is the suffering of that being that's been killed on the dock. But put that aside for one moment. I totally... I, I honestly, I can, t I could tell you the details of that suffering, and it would just break your heart. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. And uh, but you made a really important point there, which, and th this is really difficult, right? And this is part of sentientism, right? Sentientism says have a naturalistic worldview, but have compassion for all sentient beings. That includes other humans. <laughs> and mm. there are many in the animal advocacy movement who, understandably, are so outraged at the. <laughs> frankly the horror we inflict on other species because of that human exceptionalism that they've almost given up on the human species as a whole which i think is, is a shame you can understand their emotion but uh, it's too early to write us off yet and we need to have compassion with other humans even the ones who do these things and even the ones we disagree with both morally it's just the right thing to to do to have compassion compassion doesn't mean weakness or appeasement or you can't be firm and condemning behavior or morality but you should still have compassion for the individuals concerned but also to your point because it's more effective if we can engage with compassion because that's a way to have a constructive conversation and help find maybe people to you know make it easy for them to transition to less harmful ways of life and that's the final conversation really is about imagining the future and i try and you know, see if my guests will join me in taking a sort of positive cast it's difficult sometimes but if we imagine that more people i think you know shared a, a broadly naturalistic worldview and shared a more expansive moral view whether it was my flavor your flavor or somewhere in between i guess two questions what do you think that future could look like ultimately and you can go sci-fi 
future or more immediate as you see fit but also how do you think we can actually practically make those changes happen how can we persuade people how can we shift systems okay so the first thing is which is a really bit of very good news is that we don't need to change everybody you know the tipping points of that we all hear so much about with climate breakdown all those very dangerous and severe tipping points with positive feedbacks yeah they can work the other way as well in fact actually professor tim lenton who's an absolutely uh fantastic climate scientist who's collaborated with james lovelock over many years he just co-authored a paper that came out just a couple of weeks ago actually talking about the positive tipping points within the human world that can really make a difference he's talking about climate breakdown but but you know we can reach those tipping points and he used you know renewable uh, energy and transport as one of the examples now you can see it in other social change movements as well they always feel painfully slow when you're in them but you look back over even recent decades and it's amazing how quickly we've managed to change yeah and you know, the way um we were at a um fantastic uh retreat uh, workshop around the ocean, not last year, the year before. And what we were talking about is those tipping points. And what the research shows us around the world is that those tipping points, depending on the situation, will be anywhere from 3% of the population that you're working with. That's in, that is the, the target population. Yeah. Up to about 20%, from 3% to 20%, depending on the situation. So worst case scenario... We need 20% of a population to move yeah. and change their attitudes, their beliefs, and so on. And when we then have system-wide change. And best-case scenario, we only need 2 or 3%. Working on that, that makes our, our job, our task, an awful lot less onerous when we consider that, okay, here I am with the game fishing fraternity. So rather than having to change everybody's mind there, I can actually have one-on-one conversations, uh, which I do with people where those conversations are respectful, Mm. people listen to each other and so on, knowing that what I know about those conversations is that I won't know how that spreads yeah. But at some point, or even during that conversation, I am contributing to reaching that tipping point. And I've also learned over the years that, okay, I write books and, and I give talks and, and so on, but also working one-on-one with people is just as important as reaching yeah. hundreds of people or thousands of people. Each conversation is absolutely worthwhile and, and as important yeah i agree and i think there's 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 already some interesting movements that are taking that philosophy to heart and trying to drive change as i said it's, it's understandable the emotion and um and the aggression sometimes that can come through when you see something that is clearly obviously morally wrong and you want to hector and you want to preach and you want to condemn and i, I do understand that and i do it myself sometimes it's hard <laughs> but actually there's some there are some really brave movements and 
within, for, for example, farming communities, there's an organization called the Rancher Advocacy Program, and there are a range of different organizations growing up now who are actually working with animal farmers and saying, look, we understand your culture is embedded around this industry. We understand your, your livelihoods are tied up in these industries. We understand the commercial pressures you're under. You know, most of them have been basically enthralled to mega corporations that are driving them in difficult ways already. How can we help find a just transition, a way that you can maintain your culture, maintain your livelihood, but shift to a business that doesn't have suffering and death at its heart, but they're working with the farmers and the ranchers to to actually find a way to transition, whether it's plant-based foods or different types of industries or tourism or sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. So I think in a way that's an echo of what you're trying to do in your conversations and ultimately part of my vision for the future is where we've ended up completely ending all animal farming and all fishing because we've managed to help those communities and those families transition to different ways of living and different ways of having livelihoods that aren't based on harm and suffering to sentient beings so yeah i think that's a powerful message and a compassionate one too yeah, I, I think so. And, and I'm my personal thing is, yeah, I would love to see an end to all of that as well on a, from a personal perspective. When I put on my ecology hat, I acknowledge that truth of nutrient cycling and the importance of that, you know, decomposing fungi and bacteria right up to the, to the apex predators all have ecological roles to mm. fulfill. And, and it's massively complex and we, should, and we should be very prudent and not have hubris about how we, yep. you know, engage with that stuff. But although yes. we do already. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about it is that part of the evolution of life, certainly here anyway on this planet, we can't speak to other planets. We have no knowledge of that. Um, but certainly... Clearly, we can see without any doubt that the evolution of consciousness, self-awareness has been going hand in hand with the increasing complexity of all of that nutrient cycling. Mm. And the two of them are completely intertwined. And we are a part of, of both of those, as all life. Yeah. Um, and we happen to have this space and time right now where our awareness of all of that is increasing and deepening. Yeah. So rather than seeing it as a closed book, this is what it is. It's nutrient cycling. It's life eats life. You know, it's this, we need to see it as that continuum, that evolutionary continuum. And where are we not only as, you know, ecological nutrient distributors, but also as part of a wave of conscious evolution that we are sharing with many others we can't, what a shame it would be if we stay static and stand yeah. still with yeah. that. And, yeah. and, and we're not. Yeah. <laughs> That's the good thing. We're not. Yeah, I agree. Moving forward. And, I, and, and so I see that it, it fills me with joy when it, we are, whenever I am feeling a bit down about yet another game fisherman <laughs> yeah. um, doing his thing. It fills me with joy when I just ponder 
that fact that we are on this evolutionary journey and that consciousness journey um, that we're on is going to take us into amazing places. Yeah. And, you know, what you're doing with your podcasts and what so many people are doing around the world, it's exactly, well, to be and through it's exactly what the world wants. Yeah. It, yeah. This is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be exploring, questioning, trying to move. We can say move forward. We, we now know, of course, that a linear time trajectory is not the most appropriate way to define evolution. It, it's something for us to get our head around. Yeah, you know, I agree. And I think, and it's this fascinating balance because in a way, the fact that we have this developing awareness and also the amazing capabilities we have as humans to use for good or ill is just evolutionary happenstance, really. And it's to me that there's, you know, one approach we've taken is to, as you've described eruditely, think that we are the be all and end all, nothing else matters, and then we can just destroy in our own needs as we see fit, right? Whether it's fossil fuels, whether it's environmental destruction, whether it's animal, animal agriculture. So one side, there's this sort of superhuman arrogance that ultimately ends up hurting us too. And I think we are quickly recognizing the problems with that approach. There's another approach, which is almost to give up and say, look, we have such a reverence for nature that we need to withdraw and step away. And, um, and I have a challenge with that because something being natural doesn't mean it's moral or good. Rape and infanticide and murder and tribalism are a natural things but they are also deeply awful so we have this interesting balancing act between the dangers of hubris and the sort of just backing away from engaging with the world as a whole and i think you've laid out a really nice path between the two of saying look we can capitalize on this awareness we have with this compassion we have with this recognition of the perspectives of other sentient beings and how we're all connected and we have we do have phenomenal capabilities that are developing all the time to yes do do bad but also potentially do good so yeah I... absolutely. absolutely um yeah i entirely agree with you and i i had an experience which difficult for some people to accept but i had an experience of a very deep connection with a humpback whale mother and her calf and and during that experience um what i actually experienced was seeing through her eyes wow yeah and, and, and what i was experiencing was this continuum and this connectivity and it was in the ocean and i was i experienced myself spreading out into the ocean obviously i was still there physically but i experienced myself spreading out into the ocean facilitated by her consciousness so this was a meeting of minds a meeting of consciousness deliberate and what that made me realize was that continuity where we don't have to, we're mortals, we're mortal beings, and it seems to be a problem for us. Um, and while we are these mortal beings, we are still part of this continuum. Yeah. And that was really the thing that was coming through to me is I'm part of this amazing journey that is the evolution of this planet for whatever reason that might be. If there is a reason, it just happens to be this way. If that's what it is, if it just happens to be this way, it's equally amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah and absolutely. That I 
having that experience of being part of that continuity uh, and people can actually consciously go and do that. You can consciously engage with the world in that way. You can have that intention to experience yourself as part of that continuum because that is the truth. That's real. Yeah. You know, this is the evolutionary process. All of our science backs us up on that. Yeah, we are all stardust. And <laughs> yeah. and and if that's not enough for anybody, fair enough. And if you want something else, cool. You yeah. know? But at the same time, that human exceptionalism, that, that's the thing that kind of needs to take a back seat. Celebrate our human uniqueness, our special qualities, and at the same time, celebrate the uniqueness and the special qualities of everybody else uh, and celebrate that. Yeah, love it. And, and, the, and given the naturalism at the heart of sentientism, I talk a lot about rationality and reason, but it's just as important to feel that sense of emotional connectedness and that sense of you can do it on a rational basis, still recognize your connection with you know, the world and the universe and your community, but also to feel that emotional connection through compassion with other sentient beings. And however imperfectly framed by the human imagination, right? however imperfectly to put yourself in the position of the other, yeah. you know, particularly if you can do that even beyond species, is, a, is an enormously emotionally resonant and deeply powerful experience. Yeah, it is. So. It is. And, and, and at the core of sentience is feeling. Yeah. Yeah, you know, feeling and experience. Yeah, uh, and we engage our mind uh, and our intellect in service to creating meaning for ourselves from those experiences. Mm. Uh, and I think it's really important to always keep that in mind that sentience is the act of feeling <laughs> mediated through the physical senses and given deeper personal and collective meaning through our intellectual reasoning and inquiry. And the two of those together, incredibly powerful way of being in the world. Yeah. And, you know, what, what I don't think that anything more is required of us for, for our species and therefore now, because we are impacting everything else for the rest of life to flourish yeah. and you know that yeah and and we are we're on that journey which to me is I've, i find that um really hopeful and um joanna macy is, is an amazing buddhist philosopher and physicist quantum physicist she talks about active hope mm. and that's rather than just being hopeful or yes. hope or having feelings of hopelessness, you're actually engaging with an act where you, through your actions, you are creating a sense of hope. And, and I think that's what we're engaged in. Yeah, that's a powerful note to end on. It's been an inspiring conversation. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you, Jamie. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's great. And sorry for keeping you up so late. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> What's the best way of people finding out more about your work and buying your books and following your 
following what you okay. do. Yep. So we have a website, which is oceanspirit.org. So that's a nice, easy one. And yeah, if, if anybody's interested in, in having an exploration of the, the living ocean in Lots of the ways that we've been talking about, really. My most recent book is called The Ocean is Alive, and that is available through all online outlets, not very many bookstores, really. So, yeah, Amazon or Book Depository or anything like that. So The Ocean is Alive. Great. And, yeah. Yeah, and I'll include the links in the notes as well if people want to follow up. So, Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Glenn. Thank you again so much, and I wish you well. That's an inspiring vision. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?